What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Scott, I'm Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. The job market's still tight. The consumer's still strong. And even some of the most negative data points of the economy are getting a little less bad. So what if the economy is not just successfully avoiding a recession, but actually getting stronger? Plus, one food stock just serving up solid earnings. It's already been red hot. You've probably never heard about it. We'll introduce you to it, talk to the CEO about what the company is not going to do this year. And he may be a vegan, but he's sinking his teeth into one meaty name that is just too good to ignore. All that and more ahead over the hour. Well, let's start off with that. We're kicking off this holiday shortened week uh, with the pride of Northern California. And uh, we might just want to go back to bed or have another holiday weekend day. Dom, it's not looking good out there. No, it's not. Uh, thank you, though, for giving a shout out to my native Northern California, Brian. But anyway, we are starting this holiday shortened trading week off, as Brian notes, on a downside of a down note. We already snapped five week winning streaks back on Friday of last week. So as things stand right now, the Dow Industrials are down about one quarter of 1%, and that's the good news. It's only down 95 points, 38,533. The S&P 500 is now solidly below the 5,000 mark. 49.65 is the last trade there. We're off three quarters of 1% or 40 points at this point. And just to give you a frame of reference, at the highs of the session, we were still down roughly 12 points at the highs and down 50 points at the low. So tilting again towards the lower end of that range so far. The Nasdaq and that tech trade really taking it on the teeth today, down 1.5%. That's 226 points for the Nasdaq composite, shaved off 15,548. A bright spot for certain parts of the market have to do with deal making, specifically with regard to what's happening with Discover Financial and Capital One, because Capital One's going to buy Discover Financial for 35 point some odd billion dollars. Biggest deal of the year if it goes through. Discover shares up 14%, Capital One up about 1%. And by the way, that's well off session low so far. But American Express, Visa, MasterCard, some of the ripple effects that you're talking about right now, pay attention to those. Brian, I know you're going to be talking about those a lot later on this show. And then if you take a look at the consumer story right now, take a look at Home Depot, which is off one quarter of 1%, off session lows, better than expected earnings, better than expected uh, revenues overall. But it's full year sales forecast, somewhat disappointing there. The company saying people are spending a little bit less on some of those big projects. Meanwhile, Walmart's up 3%. Big beat there for earnings and on revenues, thanks in part to e-commerce. And they hiked their dividend as well. And they're also, by the way, buying Vizio Holdings, the connected TV maker, for $2.3 billion. Vizio shares climbing on that. It's going to help out their ad business. So, Brian, a lot of consumer undertones and overtones and currents all over the place. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, more in the markets all day, I'm sure. All right, Dom, thank you very much. So, Let's start the bulk of the show and talk about all of you, the American consumer. As Dom just pointed out, some of you may be buying things like smaller ticket items, but the fear that consumer delinquencies could be ticking up, well, it really hasn't happened that much. And that is what Steve Leisman is here to talk about. Steve. Hey, Brian, yeah, amid some signs of stress, we did have stress earlier in the year in consumer credit. It was brought on in part by higher interest rates. But the latest data from the credit rating agency Equifax, crunched by Moody's Analytics, suggests the credit cycle may now have topped out. 
30-day delinquencies on all major types of consumer credit after surging in 2023 were virtually unchanged over the last three months of the year at a level either just a bit above or just a bit below their long-run averages. Mark Zandi of Moody's tells me people were right earlier this year to worry, but that's no longer the case. All the delinquency data has stabilized. Delinquency rates for all major categories also stabilized for the moment well below the 2009 level of the great financial crisis. Steve Rusciuto, writing on the same topic from Mizuho, says the net read from available delinquency data is fairly straightforward. Household balance sheets remain very healthy. Hold on, though. There are still risks out there. For example, if you had a substantial upturn in unemployment, you still could have some effects of higher interest rates that would suggest there could be worse data to come if it hasn't hit already. And then you have this issue of normalizing student debt payments and delinquencies. They're now running below their average levels. And there, some groups, of course, especially those with low incomes or low credit scores, could find it hard to get credit but if these overall numbers are the top here, it's not that bad a top, and it would mean consumers can help extend the expansion with no imminent pullback in spending that would be driven by a credit crunch, Brian. Crunch, squeeze, it's not just for fruit anymore. What is the difference, Steve, between a <laughs> credit crunch and a credit squeeze? Well, you could. I thought we were going to go to the cereal category, too, as well, Brian, which you could <sighs> do. Right. Look, uh, a credit squeeze is, is, is something that happens normally when banks pull back and some of your lower credit, lower income groups, uh, they may find it difficult to get credit. They may have their limits reduced. A credit crunch, which is what we experienced in 09, is when even good credits can't get any, uh, can't get loans and can't get credit. That's a much bigger problem. And I think what happened, Brian, is people were kind of reflexive in the sense of, what happened last time will happen this time. No, we did have a squeeze, but right now those numbers on delinquencies aren't getting worse. And now we'll see if banks might loosen up a little bit in the months ahead. Crunch versus squeeze, and we will see what happens with the banks. Steve Leisman, thank you very much. All right, so your next guest believes that not only is the economy successfully avoiding a recession, it may actually be getting stronger. But as a result, inflation will remain a risk and rates could be higher for longer says it's time to start looking at companies that will do well in that kind of environment. Joining us now is Chris Crisanti. He is chief equity strategist, senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. Chris, before we get to the picks, I want to talk about the Fed, because actually everybody was tripping over themselves to try to identify when or how many rate cuts there may be. I'm actually reading stuff now. There were some articles out this morning that maybe people are starting to talk about rate hikes once again, because of what happened in January, where do you stand? You know, uh, Brian, it's good to be back with you. I, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, it's completely non-consensus to say that the economy might actually be getting stronger. But, but it may be non-consensus, but it does seem to go along with the current data. I mean, we're seeing job reports that are the best in a year. The market, which is, of course, a discounting mechanism, is up over 20% since October. Um, Average hourly earnings are starting to go up again. Uh, even the real negative stuff, like the PMI reports, which, which have been declining for almost two years, have now set their highest level in a year. They're still crummy, but they used to be abysmal, and now they're back to crummy. So the point is, there's lots of indicators that are turning upwards. So what do you do with that? Well, my position is, why would the Fed want to add the stimulus of rate cuts 
to an already accelerating economy. So that's problem number one. But problem number two is deeper, which is that you know this kind of strength can easily lead to inflation, which isn't entirely flushed from the system. So, so we have those specters that investors thought were in the rearview mirror. So now instead of talking about a credit squeeze or a credit crunch like Steve was, we're actually talking about the opposite problem, which is expansion and an expansion that may be a little too fast for the Fed. Yeah, a little bit too fast. All right, but listen, in any environment, and if we see a change in the rate environment, to your point, different things may do well. So let's talk about some stocks. And as many of our viewers, at least on my show at 7 o'clock Eastern and maybe from my posts or other stuff, they know that I've, I've had a, I think, fair, but many would call it critical eye toward the EV build-out, not because I dislike EVs. I've owned one. I've driven many. It's just that there's a lot of things I think people did not think about, and people kind of blindly bought into companies that, that are anywhere on that supply chain. Unfortunately, a lot of those companies have lost a lot of people a lot of money, but at some point they, they, they either stopped going down or worse. You believe that Albemarle, which is the biggest lithium producer in the United States, kind of the gasoline of the EV revolution, right. if you will, uh, finally may have found a bottom here, because it's been brutal. I do. There's a couple of reasons for that, Brian. So we look for 30 years at the price action of Albemarle. Uh, two times previous to now, it's gone down about 65% in lithium you know, uh, declines. Uh, this time, they're down about 65 to 70% again. So that's kind of where it finds a floor. The price to sales, the price to book, they're all kind of at kind of uh, the floor levels. You don't go on price earnings because you know as well as I, those are going to disappear in a crummy market like now. But what we're doing is buying it for two to three years from now. To me, Brian, this is like buying oil three years ago when, when, no, when it couldn't catch a bid, when nobody wanted the stocks. So I think get in now. And remember, you've been completely completely right on the EVs. It was a terrific call. But outside the United States and China and Europe, they're still going like gangbusters. And they will turn here. If you get some oil, uh, gasoline prices that are going up, things like that. But we think that we're bouncing along the bottom in terms of EV negativity. Well, thank you on that. It's been uh, taking my lumps for it. But uh, as a 30-year car guy, you kind of drive them and then you think, well, you know, it's, it's coming. But Maybe slower than we think. All right, let's move on. Everybody loves Eli Lilly. Okay, they're all about the GLP-1s, right. the Ozempics, the Mount Jaros, the weight loss drugs, Novo Nordisk, Lilly. I mean, they're, they're bigger than Exxon and Chevron and some of the companies that you sort of just sideways mentioned. With that, right. you got a lot of big pharma like a Pfizer, like a Bristol-Myers that are kind of being left out there. And again, you're, I think you're looking for opportunity where others are not, Chris. Well, I, I think we're <laughs> One of the benefits of, of age, Brian, is that you've seen it all before. So there, there's been other uh, times when sectors explode on the upside. And here, the, the, uh, the, the weight loss drugs have been just doing terrific. But it's been sucking capital away from all the other you know, gigantic pharma companies that have terrific cash flow, investment-grade balance sheets, and by the way, did discover a cure to COVID in Pfizer's case. So if you put all those together, um, you've got uh, all of those good characteristics, and you can buy them at nine times earnings for Pfizer on next year's number. You can buy them at seven times for Bristol-Myers. Look, I'm not making a case that these are the next go-go growth companies, but I am making a case that the risk-reward here is pretty attractive, especially if you get to my first point, which is you know the Fed may not cut anytime soon, so the market's going to have a little more trouble. What looks cheap? What looks filled with cash flow? And it's these guys. 
Yeah, just, you know, they're not sexy, at least for now. They don't have the drugs no. that everybody seems to want. But what they do have, to your point, Chris, is nice cash flow there. Um, Johnson & Johnson also, you know, that's, listen, Johnson & Johnson is kind of half, con- or they were half consumer products, half pharma, kind of spun that off in right. Kenview. What is J&J? Now, in your mind, when you look at the stock, I mean, most people think of Band-Aids and formerly talcum powder, not anymore. It's a bad not word. Not anymore, right. Not, those right. are bad words. What is J&J? So J&J is another cash-rich pharma company that's selling at a 10-year low valuation. Look, I'm not going to get any awards for finding the sexiest, you know, the next Tesla, whether that's good or bad. Um, but but I, I am going to say, hey, you want a good risk-reward? You want to... Uh, be prepared for a, maybe a more choppy market in addition to owning your MAG-7 stocks. And, and we're starting to see this, Brian. Now, last week, the equal-weighted S&P outperformed the, the regular S&P. And, and you're starting today again, the MAG-7 are taking it on the chin. So you need something else in addition to. And I'm, I'm trying to find a couple of cheap places for folks to go. Well, right now, MAG-7 is uh, not looking very magnificent at all. So maybe we'll see a rotation back into these, quote, boring, I'm doing air quotes for people on the radio, boring companies that are just kicking off cash. Uh, Chris Crisanti, MAI Capital Management. And uh, I do appreciate the shout out, Chris. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks, Brian. All right. Someone who is spending big on credit cards is credit card company Capital One. The company is planning to buy Discover Financial in a $35 billion all-stock deal. Now, if approved by regulators... And that could be a big if it would bring together two of the top 10 largest card providers in the world. So what would it mean for the other big players and how credit may impact you? Here now is Dan Dolev. He is managing director at Mizuho Securities, does not cover these names directly himself. But I'm sure, Dan, and welcome. You've got a macro view. First off, uh, Raymond James last night, Ed Mills and his team, uh, great work. I mistakenly identified them as RBC. My apologies. Um, They came out with a note saying that it would probably be difficult to get this deal approved given the regulatory environment. I actually think so, you know, again, I don't cover Capital One and uh, DFS, but I actually think they have a good case because what they're doing is they're widening the offering for credit cards and debit cards. So they could actually make a good case for regulators saying, hey, we're, you know, leveling the playing field. So um, so again, I so you don't have the same regulatory concerns. I mean, listen, it's the White House that is that has said they're worried about antitrust, mostly on the tech side, Amazon and, and some others. You think this this and I know, again, we're just we're just spitballing, no, of course, yeah. uh, that this does have a chance to get through the regulatory regime. I think so, because I, I do think and again, I, I from a from a Visa MasterCard perspective, this could be, a you know, if, if it's Visa MasterCard's pain, it's, you know, Capital One's a regulatory gain, because if you think about the regulator, the regulator uh, has gone against like Visa in yeah. the past. So if anything that kind of is a drag on Visa, the regulator would say, hey, this is a great you know, this is a great thing. And there's, the credit card space is confusing, at least to me, and I, I think, I'm guessing many of our viewers, Dan, in a sense that Capital One and Discover are very different than MasterCard and Visa, correct? Because Capital One is actually a bank that runs its processing through MasterCard or Visa. Discover kind of has its own thing. They are separate. You see the stickers on the door. Correct. Right? What would this deal create? Would it create effectively sort of another American Express? Exactly. Like you hit the nail on the head, right? So what we think well, I read is, your note. <laughs> you. It's not, <laughs> not as good as Ray J, but it's... it's <laughs> no, Getting but, old. So, um, you know, look, they, it, they're really, in my view, again, they're trying to create a small Amex, right? It, what, it's called a closed loop 
uh, system where you basically can, you have the relationship with the merchant and with the consumer, so you can A, determine interchange, yeah. you can benefit more from the interchange, and also there's about $300 billion of US credit that goes through Capital One, and they can steer- 300 billion? 300 billion, it's about 10% of the combined Visa MasterCard credit volumes wow. per year. Does this hurt Visa? Because if you're saying closed loop, Discover is its own thing. Correct. And they've had a lot of problems, accounting issues and whatever. If Capital One does this deal, do they then dump processing through MasterCard and, and, and or Visa Not, and just kind of build their own thing? Not overnight. But over time, that's they, clearly it seems to be the goal because they're paying MasterCard and Visa, I would imagine. They're paying interchange. So they're paying about 20 basis points, right? So it's 0.2 of a percent for every transaction, every dollar that you make. So they can steer some transactions away from Visa and MasterCard and use their own network, thereby creating like a mini Amex. I'd take a fifth of a 20 basis points is one fifth of 1%. I would take that on $300 billion. 600 million bucks. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. 600 million bucks. Pretty amazing. What does this mean for So if they it's do it, what does it mean for Amex stock is actually up a little bit right now, which is kind of surprising if they're mm -hmm. building this behemoth to try to go after Amex. It, they're actually going, I think they're going more after uh, the networks more than Amex. Okay. Right? They're, they're basically proving that the Amex business model is a good business model. I don't cover Amex, but you know, the market's perceiving it as, look, you know, anything that hurts Visa and MasterCard is good for Amex. Yeah, and MasterCard, I'm looking down, is down 3.5%. Uh, I can check Visa as well. I'm sure yeah. that stock is, yeah, they're down 1.5%. So it appears the market is betting if, again, I'm, I keep saying if, 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 if this deal goes through and you think that it has a good chance of doing that, that this would be a bigger threat to MasterCard than to Visa. If the market is perceiving that. I think the reaction on MasterCard is a little overdone. Because, you know, it, it just, it, 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 we calculated about one point of revenue headwind. If everything goes away, what it does is it prices in the moat is getting hurt a little bit of these two stocks. And that's why there's an overreaction. So I, I would expect to be a little bit of a coming down of the, of the negative stock. Okay, reaction. okay, there you go. And we'll, listen, this is a big deal. And one of the biggest changes potentially to consumer credit that we have seen in years or decades. Dan Dole of Mizuho. Dan, thank you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, we are just getting started on deck on The Exchange. Yet another read on the consumer and inflation, this time with the CEO of Chef's Warehouse. That's been a hot stock lately. Plus, finding value in Vice City, Miami style. Why luxury real estate developer Michael Chabot is bullish on Miami. The Exchange, back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. 
If you like Wagyu beef or high-end seafood, who doesn't? You may also fancy our next guest because his company may be supplying some of that goodness. Chef's Warehouse, ticker Chef, is a specialty food distributor. They serve over 44,000 restaurants, 3,000 suppliers and producers globally, and that gives them a unique view into the food economy and ecosystem. They also just served up an earnings beat last week, and the stock has been hot. For no more, we're joined now by Chef's Warehouse founder and CEO, and also, I'm told, former professional basketball player in Europe, Christopher Pappas. Uh, Chris, welcome to CNBC. Love talking about the restaurant industry. It's one of the biggest and most important in the United States. Our friend Tillman Fertitta, who uh, I'm sure you know him, you probably serve some of his restaurants, is on often talking about this, this issue. How is the restaurant economy right now post-COVID? Yeah, well, um, thank God it's a lot better than COVID uh, was for, uh, for our industry. So, uh, we're glad to see that chapter pass, but uh, business is great. I mean, as you can see, our, our fourth quarter was strong. Uh, you know, we like to think that the customers that we serve, you know, serve the top 10% of the world's earners, you know, upscale casualty to, uh, you know, the best of fine dining. And uh, yeah, we had a very good, a strong fourth quarter. And uh, we're very optimistic that uh, the, you know, our, our customer's consumer is pretty healthy. And it's been amazing because we all know that inflation has been a major part of the restaurant story, not just restaurants, Chris, but dine in as well. You know, grocery stores, whether you cook at home or go out to eat, costs are up. You've got a national stage right now. You know, there's this there's this theme in D.C. that everybody's gouging and rich people are getting richer. Can you explain to the audience what happened during and as we went through covid that caused a lot of the higher prices that we are seeing now? Well, obviously, you had a lot of uh, disruption in the supply chain, and that, that goes all the way to, uh, you know, if you're feeding cattle, there's a disruption. If you're buying freight, uh, fuel went up and down. So uh, it seems that that has passed us. Uh, you know, there's always something, you know, uh, now we have uh, obviously, you know, two wars going on and uh, some disruption in the, in the Red Sea. But uh, thank God things are overall, it's pretty normalized. You know, freight's come way down. Uh, you know, fuel is at a, as a manageable cost. So uh, those crazy, uh, you know, uh, headwinds that we had yeah. with inflation going crazy. You know, last year, I mean, we saw uh, under two percent overall. You know, was our was our latest number. So uh, seems like it's pre- it's pretty normalized. But prices are not going. The burger that was thirteen dollars at a you know a fast cat not a fast food but you know what I mean like a like a you know mom and pop sure. restaurant in the Midwest it was thirteen bucks with fries. It's now twenty one bucks with fries. I'm just making the numbers up, but you get my point, Chris. That's not going back to thirteen dollars, is it? No, we we, we don't see it. Uh, you know, a lot of the costs. You know, wages are up. You know, that's a big input cost. So. Uh, we, we don't see, thank God, we don't see crazy uh, inflation at, at, at this moment or, um, you know, wh- where it's settled, I think is manageable. But I don't think, uh, rarely have I ever seen restaurant prices go backwards. Uh, we're just glad they're kind of stabilized. And, um, you know, what we tell, you know, our, our clients are, you know, it's expensive, so it better be good. So uh, our yeah. focus is on the quality of, of the product. Yeah, and we're showing some of your customers. You got you know, Hard Rock, Ritz-Carlton, MGM, Shake Shack, many, many more. You focus more on the independent side rather than the massive national chains, Chris, as I understand it. So for, for people who are not familiar with your company, and some investors are because mm-hmm. the stock's done well the last year, 
Who do you compete with? Are you competing with like a like a Pat LaFrida at the very high end on the meat side? Or are you competing more with an Aramark? I don't, where do you fit into the scheme? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we like to think, we're very competitive, obviously. And we like to think that, uh, you know, anybody that sells a box into our, our, uh, our customers uh, is a competitor, but uh, you know, Chefs is very unique. Um, you know what we do. It's a you know it's a logistical company. You know we buy from over you know a few thousand uh, suppliers from uh, over forty countries uh, around the world. So you know we buy good, better, best. Uh, so we compete you know with the big guys a little bit and some of our bigger customers, and we compete with a lot of the mom and pops you know at the street levels. People selling, you know, specialty, have something specialty, you know, like Pat and other distributors uh, or processors. So, uh, but Chef is unique because we do it all, you know, through mm -hmm. our system. And we're able to, you know, we're able to pretty much supply, you know, our customer almost uh, through all their needs. So it's a very unique model. And, and you've grown organically and you've grown through deals as well. Will you remain sure. sort of, pardon the pun, hungry for more acquisitions? I had to get a food yeah. pun in there somewhere, yeah. Chris. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're always hungry for growth. And, uh, you know, with over a thousand, uh, you know, uh, people in the streets uh, in our sales department every day. So uh, we're constantly calling on new customers. You know, I think we grew over 11 percent of our customer base last year. Uh, but uh, I think we've done enough acquisition, you know, for right now. You know, we're always, always, always talking to people and always uh, open to new ideas. But right now we've built out a, a pretty good footprint, you know, which was my goal for the last 10 years. And uh, I think, you know, we're, we've, we've set the company up to really start to harvest a lot of the, the seeds we planted over the next so many years uh, through tremendous organic growth. So, you know, we never say never, but right now the focus is organic growth. Organic growth, Chef's Warehouse. The stock has been hot the past year. The pride of Ridgefield, Connecticut. Chris Pappas, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right, coming up, probably no surprise here, but real estate is the worst sector for your money so far this year. But even with that, there are always opportunities for investors interested in dividends. We'll tell you where to find them next. And as we head to break, Senator Elizabeth Warren may be watching our segment just moments ago because she just tweeted, quote, the capital of, or the merger of Capital One and Discover threatens our financial stability, reduces competition, and would increase fees and credit costs for American families. This Wall Street deal is dangerous and will harm working people. Regulators must block it immediately. So there you go. Senator Warren, very powerful, on the tape. We'll see if those stocks move. We're back right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Not a great day for technology stocks, by the way. The entire markets are down, but the NASDAQ is down 1.5%. Many of these high rollers, like a Supermicro, Supermicro is down another 10%. It's lost 30% of its value. Back on February 15th, just last Thursday night, I tweeted, 
I'm getting old. I was a little bit concerned about some of this run. Stock's down 30% since that time. A lot of the air coming out, a lot of people getting pin pinched. Uh, I'm sure we'll get more on it throughout the day. All right, we mentioned the Walmart Vizio deal briefly at the top of the hour. That is weighing on shares of Roku, which, by the way, is coming off its worst day on record after disappointing guidance. In fact, with this move, Roku is now down 29% in just two sessions. By the way, Walmart CEO Doug McMillan will join Jim on Mad Money tonight. So it's a big interview, especially around this Vizio deal. So catch Doug on with Jim, 6 p.m., Mad Money. Also check out shares of Western Midstream. They're spiking right now, about 5%. They were up more than that. A Reuters report that Occidental Petroleum, which owns 49% of this natural gas pipeline operator and controls operations, is exploring a possible sale of Western Midstream. We've reached out to them for comment, and of course, we'll let you know if we have an update. Western Midstream is up. Occidental may spin it off to pay down debt. All right, elsewhere, real estate has been an underperformer lately, no surprise. But with potential rate cuts on the horizon, are there opportunities starting to grow in the sector? Dom Chu is taking a look for this month's Sectornomics. Don. All right. So real estate, of course, being hit hard because of the real estate aspect tied to what's happening with interest rates. Now, if you take a look at the sector overall, it's been an underperformer over the course of the past year versus the broader market. It's down roughly three to four percent versus a 23 percent gain for the S&P 500. So are there ways to kind of screen out for where there are possible opportunities? Well, if you take a look at this particular way that we approached it, you look at the sector overall. We decided to ask the CNBC Pro team to take a look at their stock screens and look for at least opportunities. They looked at the S&P 500 real estate sector. They looked for positive price performance over the course of the past three months, so shorter, medium-term momentum to the upside, and an above-average dividend yield. Currently, that's right around 35 to 3.75% for the sector overall. An interesting slate of companies came and passed that screen within the sector overall. Boston Properties, for one maintains that positive price momentum and a 6% yield. Crown Castle, which owns you know, cellular towers with a 5.8% yield. And Vici Properties, which is a big hospitality and gaming REIT. They own you know, the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, also the, the Venetian, uh, Caesars Palace, has a 5.6% yield and satisfies some of those screening requirements as well. So if you take a look at some of those, and by the way, for more, just go over to cnbc.com slash pro. Pro subscribers can actually have this screening tool at their own disposable, can, can kind of take a look at, see what they variable-wise want to kind of fool around with to see if they can get their own screens intact as well. So, Bri, watch real estate. I'll send things back over to you. We are watching some real new names there. Vici, Dominic Chu, thank you very much. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Brian, thank you very much. The White House said today that they are aware of and looking for information about the reported arrest of a ballerina in Russia who is a dual Russia-U.S. citizen. The Russian Federal Security Service said that it arrested the person on suspicion of treason for raising funds for Ukraine. That is according to the New York Times. Former YouTuber and family vlogger Ruby Frankie was sentenced to four one to 15-year terms in prison by a district court in Utah today, ending a months-long child abuse case against the mother of six. Frankie's business partner is also expected to be sentenced. Both pleaded guilty to four counts of second-degree aggravated child abuse in December. And South Korean trainee doctors walked off the job today in protest of a government policy aimed at boosting medical school quotas. The walkout follows yesterday's mass resignation as the doctors and government authorities lock horns over how to address the country's low supply of doctors relative to the population. 
which is the lowest, by the way, in the developed world. Brian, back to you. Tyler Matheson. Tyler, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, coming up, your next guest made headlines with his billion-dollar bet on San Francisco's iconic Transamerica Pyramid building. Now, he's gone the other way. He's doubling down on Miami. Real estate developer Michael Chabot will join us where he is seeing opportunity in the Sunshine State. Maybe talk a little bit about San Francisco. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here is Estee Lauder CFO Tracy Travis sharing her story. in environments where not many people look like you, you will be constantly challenged to prove yourself. So you need to always invest the time to be well prepared. Being a constant learner is what I've loved throughout my life. My incredible mother taught me to always try to treat others the way you would want to be treated and pay it forward, which has certainly influenced my mentorship and sponsorship of others throughout my career. Welcome back to The Exchange. I've got some breaking news that you have not heard anywhere else. Florida's real estate market is booming. Did you know that? And its mild climate and zero state income tax law continues to attract both people and business. If CNBC needs a Miami bureau chief, I I stand ready to make the sacrifice. Last year, Florida overtook New York as the second most valuable real estate market in the nation. According to Zillow, California still tops that list. But real estate developer Don Peebles, who actively builds and buys in Florida, told us right here on the exchange last week that he sees a bit of a slowdown ahead. Now, Miami will slow. We're seeing it now on the residential side. Miami's slowing down in terms of volume um, and and prices are pulling back a bit. The COVID uh, euphoria is over now. And now we're seeing a more stable and level um, environment, which is going to be good because in order to get more businesses down here, things have to stabilize. All right. Your next guest also develops in the Sunshine State, but says he is seeing unprecedented demand, particularly in the luxury segments. In fact, he is investing $2 billion in Miami's historic Art Deco district. Joining us now on set is Michael Chavot. He is the chairman and CEO of Chavot, his eponymous firm. Michael, good to see you in person. Good seeing you. Thank you, Brian. Uh, You can buy high and sell higher. Do you think that there's parts of Miami that are a little bit inflated now, or do you see just a, a nice runway ahead? Well, it's not necessarily parts of me. I mean, I agree with some of what Don is saying, but what Don Don gave a blanket statement. So I don't think that all of Miami is seeing uh, um, crazy demand, and not all of Miami is is seeing kind of uh, um, oversupply. It's really product specific. So there's a flight to quality, and if you look at areas like downtown uh, uh, Miami, Brickell, what I call kind of the canyons of the yeah, canyons of the Citadel's buildings. Correct. Citadel's building, actually a great building on the ocean, but there's a lot of supply there. There's a lot of residential there. And Don is referring mostly to those types of buildings. If you move across the, the bridge into Miami Beach, it's underdeveloped. Are you going there's to like no a supply. Wynwood type area? No, no I'm wh- talking about Miami Beach, Collins Avenue. So we own three acres on the ocean at the Raleigh Hotel, right? We're developing. I literally f- walked by it two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. For 200 foot of, 220 foot of beachfront. There is no beachfront available in Miami Beach to develop. We're developing, uh, you know, the Raleigh Hotel, which is getting restored with 40 residences, a new hotel there. We're selling units there between $4,000 to $12,000 a foot. 
Okay, this is unprecedented. Four thousand and twelve thousand dollars a foot. A square foot. A square foot designed by Peter Marino. This, these are numbers that we've never seen. But this is also because you have a thousand people a day moving. To that Florida. sounds. I mean, that sounds expensive even for New, like New York. What I used to think fifteen hundred a square foot, like outrageous. You know. Well, why? There's no reason that buying an apartment on Central Park should be less or more expensive than buying an apartment in Miami Beach on the ocean. Right. It's the same people you have. Well, they would say the climate risk, you know. Well, I don't know. You got to protect against that. I can tell you this tax risk in New York, right? You, you, you just mentioned that. But if Did you something have, just happened with a real estate developer <laughs> in taxes in Manhattan? I mean, can you, can you go to that? Does that actually, as a real estate developer, and I talked to three commercial real estate guys after that. I'm not going into politics, but they're all like, yeah, not, I mean, this is what appraiser is going to appraise, and you're going to always value it up and value it down on a rough way, does it make you more hesitant to invest in New York City? No, listen, we're investing in New York City. We own four buildings on Fifth Avenue. So I have a different strategy. We invest only in super prime real estate. COVID was actually a great uh, accelerator for super prime real estate. Product in that category has only gone up. You talked about San Francisco also, right? Prices have doubled in the Transamerica pyramid since before COVID. So we're seeing growth in super prime real estate. What Don is speaking, was speaking about is mid-market product yeah. that was, again, oversupplied because of this big COVID rush to move to Miami. Yeah, the Amman, which is a private club and residence and hotel in Manhattan, I'm told is not terrible. It's um, not terrible. It, the rise of the super luxury super club I, I think you'd probably agree that you look at Manhattan, you look at ZZ's, Cipriani, downtown, sort of the polo bar in a certain way. How much are people willing to pay these days for their privacy? So it's interesting. There's been also a big shift. You talk about the private club. Actually, 711 Fifth Avenue, which is the building we bought from, used to be the Coca-Cola building, mm-hmm. um, Core Club is there, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the most prestigious uh, uh, private clubs in the city. And again, they're seeing big growth in membership now. I think that is also has been driven by two things, right? The effect from the UK that finally caught here. But again, COVID was an accelerator. People want to be near people they know. They want to be in a more protected environment. We've seen a lot of that. You talk about the Amman Club, which obviously we own as well, um, ZZ's. Um, we're seeing that all throughout, and we're doing that in Miami also. So Lungosteria, which is probably the most known Italian restaurant out of, uh, out of Milan and, and Paris, is opening at the Raleigh, a private members club. Wow. A private members club. A private members But why club. do it that way and not just because people will pay for the privacy? Because they'll pay for the privacy. Yeah. And, and there's a demand at that level. San Francisco, you own the Transamerica building. I, I just, I actually tweeted out a picture a couple months ago. I stayed right behind it in that Hilton. Um, what do we need to do to fix San Francisco? So, I, 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 amazing <laughs> city. I'm not, I'm not uh, knocking it. The opposite. I want San Francisco to win. It's better for America. Well, look, San Francisco is winning. I was at a show, what, a month and a half ago, and I said San Francisco is winning. I've been saying San Francisco is going to win for, for quite a while now. And today at the cover of the Wall Street Journal, there was an article how tech is going back to San Francisco. We're seeing that. I told you, the, the pyramid rent has doubled really? since pre-COVID. You have to get the people back. I was shocked when I walked around San Francisco the Embarcadero used to have thousands of people rushing to the ferries to go to, you know, home to San Rafael. It was like eight people walking around. It was just, it was a ghost. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's better now than it was than it was 12 months ago. We're seeing movement back to San Francisco. Good. We're definitely seeing that. I think there's still the city needs to be a lot more aggressive on what it does for security. But we're definitely seeing that. But you know, when you go to Miami, what what we we discussed Miami Beach. Miami Beach office today 
is something that, that we are huge believers on. You talked about $2 billion. A big portion of that is developing very high-end offices in Miami Beach in order to satisfy the people like the Ken Griffins, like the... Uh, um, the Lionel Messi's Lionel of Messi. the world. I'm not sure Lionel Messi's sitting in an office. Hopefully he's not. But, but there's, there's a tremendous amount of demand for high-end office today that doesn't exist. Miami Beach has never been an office place, but with movement of, of wealth to Miami Beach, there's a demand right now to work, live, and play in Miami Beach, not just play in vacation, yeah. which is what it was pre-COVID. Mandarin Oriental residents in Bev Hills, 90210, here in New York City, the Amman, you got a big building in Chicago, and the Transamerica Pyramid Building. Michael Chavot, we could go on all day, but uh, then I get fired, so I appreciate you coming in. Michael, thank, thank you. you very much. It's a pleasure. All right, coming up, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas making a bad proposition. That's Battery Alliance of Detroit suggesting the big three automakers team up, leverage their respective strengths when it comes to EV manufacturing, and as adoption slows. You're going to hear from the Stellantis CEO to make Jeep and Chrysler about the main headwind he thinks needs to change. Stick around. Let's now get some show and tell, where we show you a chart and then tell you a story. Stellantis, which is the parent of Jeep and Ram, trading slightly lower, but still near its 52-week high. The automaker plans to launch 18 new EVs this year, including eight here in the United States. Here's what CEO Carlos Tavares told Squawk Box about what it'll take for EVs to really take off in America. To make the EV spark, uh, you need to align a certain number of stars. You need, of course, clean energy. You need a very dense charging network that people can see so that they remove range anxiety. They need a great product with a very high range, right? like uh, the products we are bringing to the market, 500 miles of range. That should be enough. And you need affordability. And what is at stake right now is affordability. Maybe why Ford cut the price of its Mach-E today. All right, speaking of affordability, Chinese EV maker BYD just launched a new version of its hybrid sedan for only $11,000. That is a 20% price cut from its previous version. The stock, like most Chinese equities, is basically at a three-year low, but keep an eye on the Chinese auto market. When those BYDs start to come here, Detroit's going to have a big, new, and inexpensive, because there's no labor costs, challenger. All right, coming up, homes, hot wings, and hackers. Sounds fun. We've got the trade on Toll Brothers, Wingstop, and Palo Alto in earnings exchange. Next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've got the trade on three big gainers over the past year. They are home builder Toll Brothers, cybersecurity company Palo Alto, and Wingstop. They sell wings ahead of their results. Our trader today is Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors, President and CIO. All right, Lee, you ready? Let's kick it off with Toll Brothers. Toll Brothers stock soaring up nearly 40% since October. Mortgage rates easing off their highs. Wells Fargo watching order volumes and builder sentiment as lower rates reduce the need for buyer incentives, although rates have stabilized, if not ticked a little higher in the last couple of weeks. Lee, how would you play, if at all, Toll Brothers? I like Toll Brothers. I don't think it's about the rates. I think it's about if they're going to actually complete 10,000 homes this year. Remember, they're looking at 10,000 homes this year at almost a million dollar average price. Here's what they're doing and why I think it's less of a rates issue. They're trying to build what they call affordable luxury, which just means taking a big house, putting it on a cheaper lot with less upgrades. That's making it affordable even as rates stay high or sticky all year. I also think that their general 
um, strategy of trying to make more affordable homes. It's a big thing for Toll Brothers. They're always into the high-end luxury stuff. I think this is the right way. I don't see anything problem with the stock. If you own it, I'd hold it. Own it, hold it. There you go. All right, Lee, next up is Palo Alto Network. Shares more than doubling over the past year, gaining 20, 25% already in this year alone. Goldman Sachs noting secular drivers and cybersecurity, including an elevated breach backdrop, whatever that means, thanks in part to the Israel-Hamas war and the upcoming election, as well as easing spending headwinds. Would you trade? Would you own? Would you sell? Would you hold Palo Alto? For full disclosure, I own it, and I love it this year. I, I think it might have gotten a little ahead of itself. I don't care. Here's what the issue is. It's can they execute? Now, you are going to hear some news about how they, they, they keep talking about the price of money. A lot of their clients are these Silicon Valley startups and what have you that you know are living off of private equity lines of credit, right? And so I think that if you get in a quarterly results where they say, well, we're having problems where people want to uh, lengthen their duration as if they're bond traders on paying for these softwares, I think that might be an opportunity if it pulls back. But here's where the big opportunity is. A third of Palo Alto's workers themselves are independent contractors with unmanaged computer devices. So much of us that in big business have unmanaged devices. That's where the opportunity is. I think there's got a lot of tailwind to this. I would just hold it. I think this is a multi-year play. Hold it, multi-year play. All right, by the way, folks, do not miss Kramer's exclusive interview with the Palo Alto CEO following those results. Mad Money tonight, so Jim's got the CEO of Palo Alto and the CEO of Walmart. Another big night on uh, Mad Money. All right, Lee, finally, listen, I, I, you're a vegan, from what I understand. I don't know how you live, but you're a vegan, and so I doubt you've had their product. But Wingstop, you, maybe you're eating the stock because shares are up 90% in the past six months. Stiefel, they expect to see positive sales growth. Wingstop launching new offering. Input costs stay low. You may not like the product, Lee, but what about the stock and the company? I asked my young analyst who definitely eats hot wings, and he was like, it's much better than Buffalo Wild Wings. They have a less crappy option for that market. Now, here's what I love about it. It's kind of like one of those classic Peter Lynch where it's like, is the story getting better? And then number two, do they have runway? They have a little bit more stores than a Five Guys, about half as much as Chipotle. You know, I don't think this is going to be the new Kentucky Fried Chicken or some big chain, but they've got another two or three years of packing on 250, 300 stores before they start saturating America. Remember, it's a cheap franchise to own. They can get you in there for four to 600,000, but you wow. gotta buy three of them. So, I mean, think yeah. about that. So I think this Lee. company, I'm most excited about it. I don't own it, but I'm definitely looking. There you go. And, and you got the uh, sideways taste test. Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors. Lee, thank you very much. Folks, thank that's it for The Exchange. I will see you right back here at 7 p.m. Eastern for last call, Power Lunch. My friend Tyler Matheson, up after this quick break. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 